3, verses 8 through 13. Last week, we concluded our message on miracles. And uh, this week, we're going to do a two-part series on deacons. And you may wonder, why are we spending time in worship talking about deacons? Because deacons are important to the life of a church. And next week, I'm going to talk about the importance of deacons and what they do and what their responsibilities are according to Scripture. But this morning, I want to talk about what are the qualifications for deacons. And you need to know what the qualifications are because you, as the body of Christ, as a member of Red House Baptist Church, you are involved in the process of nominating deacons. In order to nominate men who are worthy To be ordained and elected as deacons, you need to know what Scripture says that their character needs to be and what other qualifications they need to fulfill. Now, this is how this process works. In your bulletin, you have a deacon nomination form. It has the Scripture I'm going to be talking about this morning. And then you are to write on that form a name of a man that you believe fits the qualifications I'm going to talk about this morning. And then you need to write a sentence or two as to why you think that man that you nominate should be a deacon of Red House Baptist Church. And then at the bottom, you need to sign your name to it. Not somebody else's name. Son, as my son was going to do. You need to sign your own name so that we can know that you are a member of Red House Baptist Church. Now, we're not going to come to you and say, why did you nominate so-and-so? That's not what this is for. This is for us just to know who nominated a particular man to be a deacon. And then once we receive those nominations, those will go before the deacon body and myself, and we'll work through those nominations and pray over those nominations. And then based on that, we will be approaching the men in the church who have been nominated and who we feel are qualified to fulfill the position of deacon. And then once we do that, those men will be notified. and They will be asked if they feel called to serve as a deacon. And then if they are, then a a deacon subcommittee will go to those men. We'll talk to them. We'll interview them a little bit. We'll pray about them. We'll pray with them, making sure they understand what they're getting into, accepting the call to be a deacon of Red House Baptist Church. And then once that is done, then it comes before the church in a future business meeting to elect the deacons that have been approved by the deacon body. So you can see you are very important in this process as a member of Red House Baptist Church. You first nominate the men who you think should be a deacon, and then at the end of the process, you vote on those men who are presented to you by the deacon body at a future business meeting. So in order for you to nominate men who are qualified, I want to go through those qualifications this morning as they are spelled out in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And what I want you to understand that once you are ordained as a deacon, you are just not a deacon for a certain period of time. You are a deacon for life, provided that you live up to the qualifications as set forth in God's Word. And I believe in the lives of many believers and lives of many churches, the office and service of deacons are not fully understood. There are many who really aren't sure about the qualifications. They're really not sure about the purpose of deacons and what they do. And I would say that many deacons and churches fail to understand the purpose of this office as well. 
In fact, there was one deacon after discovering the biblical reasons for deacons, he said, if I had known all this before I became a deacon, I wouldn't have been one. So you men who may be nominated also need to understand what's expected and what your role is as well. So I'm going to ask you before you turn in those nomination sheets, at least wait until this message is over and don't put it in the offering plate today. Maybe even wait until after next week's message is over and then begin to start praying today and then after the next week, maybe put those in the offering plate and we'll have a basket at the Welcome Center for you to put those nominations in. Because we want you to know for sure that the men that you nominate are qualified. So let's read 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. And then I'm going to spend the time breaking down these qualifications and giving a brief explanation of each one. Let's go to 1 Timothy 3, start in verse 8 and read through 13. Paul writes, Deacons likewise should be worthy of respect, not hypocritical, not drinking a lot of wine, not greedy for money holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and they must also be tested first. If they prove blameless, they can serve as deacons. Wives, too, must be worthy of respect, not slander, self-controlled, faithful in everything. Deacons must be husbands of one wife, managing their children and their own households competently. Further, for those who have served well as deacons, acquire good standing for themselves and great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Let me just give out some pre-qualifiers. First of all, as I've mentioned, a man must, I mean, a deacon must be male, must be a man. They must be a Christian. They must be a follower of Christ. That has to be the starting point. And they have to be a faithful, active member of Red House Baptist Church. And the meaning of deacon comes from the Greek word diakonos. It means to wait tables. It means to be a servant. It's one who executes the commands of another. It means to sacrifice humbly and unconditionally. So those are the pre-qualifiers for a deacon. But the first thing I want to mention from this particular passage in verse 8, deacons must be men of good reputation. The first point, deacons must be men of good reputation. They must be worthy of respect, Paul said, meaning they have to be an example to others both inside and outside the church. These men have to be respected by the church and the community. And they must be serious in mind and serious in character and not trivialize or disregard important matters. Deacons must be men who are in a right relationship with God. They must be men who are devoted to God. And then Paul says several ways that these men are to show that they are worthy of respect. The first thing he says is that they are not to be hypocritical. That word hypocritical has the meaning of being double-tongued, meaning their speech must not be hypocritical. Their speech must be honest and consistent. They must not say one thing to some people and something else to others. It also means they must not be two-faced. They must not be one thing in the church and another way at home and another way in the community. Their speech and their character must be consistent with their beliefs. And in their speech, they are not to maliciously slander fellow church members or church leaders or policies or programs. With their speech, they're not to start factions or conflicts or wars of words. Deacons are not to grumble or be argumentative. 
Philippians 2, 14 to 15 says, Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Why? Paul says, so that you may be blameless and pure among whom you like shine, who you shine like stars in the world. A deacon's speech must be consistent with his faith. His speech must be pure. Look at Ephesians 4.15. He says, Paul said, speak the truth in love. And then 4.29, he says, no rotten talk should come from your mouth, but only what is good for the building up of someone in need. That includes no cursing, no destructive criticism of others, using speech that is only God-honoring, using speech that is different from the world. A deacon must use their words to unite and encourage and uplift the body of Christ, not to tear down and destroy it. A deacon is not to be a troublemaker, but a peacemaker. Not to start fires, but put them out. It's been said that deacons are to carry a bucket of water, not gasoline. They're to put fires out and not start fires. The second thing he says, how they show they're worthy of respect, is not drinking a lot of wine. A deacon must not be preoccupied with drink. He must not have to have a reputation as a drinker. And even though it is not a sin to have a drink, in many churches, pastors and deacons are asked to not consume alcohol. Why? Because it can damage one's testimony and be a stumbling block to others. Romans 14, 21, Paul wrote, It is a noble thing to not eat meat or drink wine or do anything that makes your brother stumble. And it is so important for a deacon's lifestyle and a pastor's lifestyle to be radically different from the world as a deacon has the responsibility to lead others to holiness and not to sin. And I believe one way to live differently from the world and to lead others to holiness and not sin is to abstain from the use of alcohol altogether. Now, there are recipes that require the use of beer and wine. And I love to grill. And there are recipes that require the use of alcohol. But I avoid them because of the perception it may cause if I were to walk out of a store with a bottle of wine and ran into somebody who I knew was the pastor of Red House Baptist Church. That would be difficult to explain. If you saw me walk out of Meyer with two bottles of wine and a six-pack, and I simply said, I'm going home to cook some steak. You know, you wouldn't believe me. You'd call the deacon be the first thing you did. And then I'd be in trouble. You know, there, there are things that we should stay away from even though it may not be a sin. And with the way social media is today, who knows who may take a picture and post it on Facebook or post it on, on Twitter or Instagram or something and say, look at what my pastor was doing. And you know what's just happened? I've affected my testimony and I've affected the ministry of Red House Baptist Church. Even the appearance of alcohol can ruin your reputation as a leader in the church and of the church. It can make your ministry and your witness ineffective. And Scripture says that we as believers are to be above reproach, meaning that we should not do anything that would cause someone to call our Christian character and witness into question 
or cause someone to stumble. And I believe if a man desires to accept the vow of a pastor or a deacon, that makes him a servant of the church for the rest of his life. And I believe he should abstain from alcohol, not because it's, it's, it's not a sin, but because it's beneficial for his testimony and his witness. And I believe the reward from abstaining from alcohol far outweighs the risk of using it. The other way a man should be worthy of respect is he should not be greedy for money, or, or some translations may say pursue dishonest gain. Deacons must be men of integrity. They must not be consumed by and covet the things of the world, but they must be passionate about the things of God. Colossians 3, 2 says, Set your mind on the things above and not on the things of this world. And this idea of, of being greedy or pursuing dishonest gain has caused the downfall of many pastors. It's called the down, caused the downfall of many church leaders. And financial abuse will ruin the ministry of the church and will tear a church apart. A deacon is not to cheat or take advantage of others and never pursue dishonest gain and seek to abuse his position to make money. A deacon must be honest and content in all areas of his life and not hold to philosophy that the end justifies the means and not believe that that whatever it takes to try to get ahead in life is what they should do. Here's the bottom line. They should not love money or anything else, for that matter, more than they love God. Matthew 6, 24, Jesus said it clearly. He said, a man can't serve two masters. You'll love one and hate the other, or you'll despise one and be devoted to the other. No man can serve God and money. The only master of a deacon's life of a pastor's life should be the Lord Jesus Christ. There should be no other master in their lives. So not only must they be wor uh, worthy of respect and have a good reputation, the second point according to verse 9, he says they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Deacons must uphold the message of salvation. What is the mystery he's referring to in verse 9? Is the gospel message is God's plan of salvation through Jesus Christ. And the profession of your faith in the gospel of Christ must be demonstrated by your humble and willing obedience to the word of God and to God's will for your life. You must be a man who is full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 6, which we'll look at next week, Stephen was one of the first deacons in Acts 6, 5. And the Bible says that Stephen was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Stephen had a clearer and stronger faith than any other man around him at that time. And to be a deacon, you must be a man of great faith. You must believe that God can do all things. You must believe that nothing is impossible for him, no matter how bleak the situation may be. God does not want spiritual leaders in the church to doubt who he is or doubt what he can do. If you have a doubting faith or little faith, what you're implying is that God is not who he says he is, nor can God do what he said he will do. To be full of faith, you must completely trust God, no matter the circumstances. You must trust his word, believing that the word of God is the inerrant, the infallible, and the inspired word 
of God himself. And as a deacon, as a church leader, you are not to compromise or distort it in any way. Not only was Stephen full of faith, Scripture says, he was also full of the Holy Spirit. And there's a difference between being indwelled with the Spirit and filled with the Spirit. The moment you receive Christ, you are indwelled with the presence of God, the Holy Spirit. But just because you receive Christ and you are indwelled with the Spirit, it does not mean that you are one who is filled with the Spirit. Filled means to be covered in every part. It means to be thoroughly permeated with completeness, lacking nothing. When you are filled with the Spirit, it means that you are not only indwelt by Christ, that you are alive in Christ. And you are only filled with the Spirit when you are submitted to God, when you are consumed by Him, when you have yielded every area of your life to His direction. It basically means that Christ is your life and you eat, drink, and breathe Jesus. And if you want to be alive in Christ, you have to be indwelled by Him. You have to be filled with Him. You have to be committed to His will, to His word, and His ways. And Paul says you must do this with a clear conscience. He says you must uphold the message of salvation, the mystery of the faith, with a clear conscience. What does this have to do with a clear conscience? A clear conscience means a conscience that's free of guilt, a conscience that's pure, and what Paul is saying is that your conduct must match the faith you profess, that you live what you believe, and that your character in no way calls into question your faith, but it proves your faith. Does that mean that deacons and pastors don't make mistakes? Absolutely not. But what it does mean is when we do sin, if we're full of faith in the Holy Spirit, we'll be quick to confess our sin and repent of our sins and ask God for forgiveness. So we can insurance, enjoy the assurance and the peace and the joy of a clean conscience. You know, I want to say this. This just doesn't apply to deacons. Every single one of us who is a follower of Christ must uphold the message of salvation. Every one of us who is a follower of Christ must do it with a clear conscience. Every one of us who is a follower of Christ must live out what we believe and by our actions and our words in no way should we call our faith into question this just doesn't apply to deacons it applies to every believer this qualification as a follower of Christ you should believe the Bible is the inspired the inerrant and the infallible word of God you should believe that Jesus Christ is the only way the only truth and the only life but a deacon should also do it and leading the church to believe that as well. The next thing I want to say is deacons must competently manage family relations. They must be men of good reputation. They must uphold the message of salvation. And they must competently manage family relations. Verse 11 and 12. Wives, too, must be worthy of respect, not slander, self-control, faithful in everything. Deacons must be husbands of one wife, Managing their children and their own households competently. Starting, I want to go to verse 12 first. He says, deacons must be husbands of one wife. There's a lot of discussion about the meaning of this phrase. In the literal Greek, it says, be of one wife 
husbands. Be of one wife husbands. Many Greek linguistic experts, of which I am not, says this means a deacon needs to be a one woman man or a type of one woman man. So the question that we have to answer is does this phrase refer to marriage? Or does this phrase refer to sexual purity? Based on my study, based on what I've looked at and what I've read and learned, I do not think Paul is addressing the marital status of a potential deacon. But I think Paul is addressing a man's moral and sexual purity. And the emphasis is placed on the number of wives a man is allowed to have, not that he must be married. A one-woman man means that a deacon is to be totally devoted to his wife, present or future, maintaining singular devotion, affection, and sexual purity in both thought and deed. Author and theologian Dr. Gene Getz in his book Elders and Leaders, God's Plan for Leading the Church, he said this, he said, we believe Paul was simply requiring that a man be above reproach morally, that he be a one-woman man. He was to be loyal to one woman and one woman only, his present wife. This was a very necessary requirement in the New Testament world since many men were converted out of raw paganism. Married men of wealth particularly retained prostitutes at the local temples and had their own special girls in their extended family quarters. Their wives in that culture could only accept this arrangement as normal. And though it was illegal to have more than one wife, it certainly was not illegal for a married man to have more than one woman in his life. So in other words, would Paul have been more concerned about a man being sexually pure in a, or, a, or a man's marital status? Knowing all that Scripture teaches about sexual purity and celibacy, I believe Paul is more concerned about a man's sexual purity than he is their marital status. And I believe Paul is listing sins and character flaws in a man's life that would keep him from serving as a deacon. And whether or not a man is married is not a sin. In fact, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, being single enables one to be more fully devoted to God. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7, a man that is not married, he is able to show more devotion and more dedication to God and the church than a man who is. So the idea that a deacon must be married would run counter to Paul's teaching that being single is a better situation for leaders in the church than being married. So I do not think that a man's marital status, his singleness, keeps him from answering God's call upon his life. Do you realize the Southern Baptist Convention through the International Mission Board and the North American Mission Board appoint single men and single women to be missionaries? Do you realize that they appoint single men to be church planters? And I know men in the ministry who've been in the ministry for years who have never been married, and they've stayed single, and they're doing a great work for the Lord. So if marriage is the requirement, the men that are serving as missionaries, serving as church planners, serving as pastors, they couldn't be a missionary. They couldn't be a church planner. They couldn't be a pastor. 
they were required to be married even though they were sexually pure and completely dedicated to God. The church I served in in California, when we were there, they elected the first single man to be a deacon at that church. And this man, he was probably in his late 20s. He was a leader in our singles ministry when we got there. He was faithful to the church. He was dedicated to the Lord. He never dated until after he became a deacon. He dated one woman, and that woman became his wife. And they're still married, and he's still serving faithfully in that church today. What if he'd have been passed over simply because of his marital status? And think about this. If being married was a requirement, Paul and Timothy couldn't have been overseers. Paul and Timothy couldn't be deacons. And are you telling me that if the Apostle Paul walked into a church, he couldn't be your pastor? I would gladly step down and let the Apostle Paul lead. Are you telling me Timothy, who Paul mentored, couldn't walk in and be your church planner? As far as we know, those men were never married. Some people say Paul's thorn in the flesh was a wife, but I don't necessarily agree with that, and I'm not going to commit to that. And there's no biblical evidence that he was, he was married. So therefore, the phrase, husband of one wife, and what I believe, does not exclude men who have never been married. I'd encourage you to read 1 Corinthians 7. It does not exclude men who have been widowed by the death of their wife. It does not exclude men who have been widowed by the death of their wife and have remarried in the faith. So what about divorce? There are some conditions, specifically three, in which I believe a divorced man would, would not be prohibited from serving as a deacon based on the teachings of Scripture. Could all men who are divorced serve as deacons? Absolutely not. Are there some men who are divorced serve as deacons? Yes. Let me give you those three scenarios first. If that divorce occurred prior to receiving Christ, you cannot make the qualifications listed in 1 Timothy apply to a man's life before he is saved. If God has forgiven him, if God has made him blameless, why should we as a church hold the past against him? You see, when one is saved, all sins are forgiven. And a man or a woman or a child, when they give their life to Christ, they become a new creation. And 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. Before someone gives their life to Christ, they are dead towards God. They have no power over sin. They have no knowledge of God's word or his will. So to judge someone's life before his new birth is totally unjust. I'm sure you know and I know many leaders in the church today as pastors are serving in other areas. Their teenage years, their early 20s years, they were a mess. They lived for the world and didn't live for Christ. And then God got a hold of their life. And God changed their life. And then God called them into the ministry and they're doing ministry for the Lord. 
In no way should that man's past or that child's past or that woman's past be held against them in serving in a church. If all that happened before they gave their life to Christ and Christ turned their life around. You see, the commands of God, the commands in Scripture, they don't apply to the world. The commands in Scripture apply to the people of God. The Bible has been described as God's love letter to His children. And people can't be held responsible or accountable for what they do not know. Listen to what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1 6, 9 through 11. He said, Do you not know that the unjust will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, homosexual, thieves, greedy people, drunkards, revilers, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. Some of you were like this, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If God has made a man clean, if God has made a man holy and blameless through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, how can the church consider that man unworthy to serve God? The second situation of a man being able to serve if he is divorced is the issue of sexual morality. Matthew 5, 31 and 32. Jesus said this as part of Sermon on the Mount. He said this. He says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, whoever, or I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual morality, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus gave the reasons for sexual morality as why a believer could divorce a woman, or a woman can divorce a man. And that word pornea, that is the broader scope term for for sexual morality. It's just not adultery. It includes all forms of sexual immorality. But I will say this. Even if sexual morality is a biblical reason for divorce, that doesn't mean the divorce should happen. I believe divorce should be the last resort, not the first resort. I don't believe any Christian should divorce unless all of their avenues have been exploited. Unless all of their avenues have been looked at. And if there is no way that the other one is repenting of their sin and they have no desire to restore the marriage, then that person who was hurt by, that, by the, their spouse committing sexual morality, I believe, according to Scripture, they have a right to divorce that person. And if Jesus says a divorce can happen because of sexual morality, we as a church need to accept the teachings of Jesus. And we need to realize that a man being a deacon because his wife was sexually immoral should not preclude him from serving as a deacon. The third reason for divorce is the abandonment of an unbelieving spouse. Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 through 16. He says, but to the rest, I, not the Lord. He said, Paul's saying, I'm not saying this. God's saying it. If any brother has an unbelieving wife and she is willing to live with him, he must not leave her. 
Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, she must not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the Christian husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to peace. For you, wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband or you, husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? Paul says if a man or marries an unbelieving woman, he is commanded to live with that unbeliever. However, if the unbelieving spouse chooses to depart because they cannot tolerate the believer's faith, the believer is to let them go. And now the believer is no longer into bondage but free to remarry. So I believe there are three situations in which a divorced man could be a deacon. But here's a word of caution. If there has been a divorce on biblical grounds, it must be so far in the past has been overcome by a long pattern of solid spiritual family leadership and being involved in and serving in a local church. There must be a consistent pattern of faithfulness to family, of faithfulness to church, and faithfulness to God. But being single or biblically divorced should not disqualify a man from serving as a deacon. But he has to be sexually pure. He has to be committed to Christ. He has to be focused on Christ and not women. He can't be a flirt or an adulterer or one who lusts or is addicted to or dabbles in pornography or any other form of sexual immorality. So the question that we, I believe we need to ask is not, is he married or not? I think the, the better question is, is he above reproach? Is he blameless in the way he relates to women? Is he sexually pure? Is he a one-woman man? And if he is married, is he faithful to his one wife? He also must confidently control his home or manage his home by having a godly wife if married or single and becomes married verse 11 it says wives too must be worthy of respect not slander self-controlled and faithful in everything now some scholars have taken the liberty to say this refers to women deacons some translations may have the word women so the question is does this refer to wives or women deacons Based on context, it is all but certain Paul is referring to the wives of deacons. A deacon's wife, he says, must be serious in mind and character. It's exactly what he said about the deacon himself. The deacon's wife must be a woman of integrity like her husband. She must be level-headed. Her speech and her actions must be God-honoring. Her speech and her actions must be consistent with her faith. She can't be one who gossips or backbites or engages in malicious talk. She must be a devoted believer and adhere to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And her life must reflect her beliefs. And she must be trustworthy in all aspects of her life and ministry and faithful in all things. And deacons and pastors, if married, they need spouses whose spiritual lives will support their efforts to properly lead and serve in the church. And a wife of a pastor, a wife of her deacon, can make or break his ministry and even impact the ministry 
of the church. So the wife of a deacon is just as important to the church as the deacon himself. He says also must be confident managers of their homes in verse 12. A deacon's home life, like his personal life, it must be exemplary. He must be one who has authority over his home. He must be one who manages his family well. And if he has children at home, he must show authority over his children. And his children must be respectful and well behaved. And as the spiritual leader, he is accountable for what takes place in his home. And he must lead his family in being faithful to Christ. Therefore, it's imperative that he preside over his home with love. It's imperative that he reside over his home with godly wisdom. It's imperative that he must love his wife and his children the way God loves us, sacrificially and unconditionally. He must be willing to die for his family and put the needs of his family above his own. And if man cannot take care of his own home, if a man can't lead his own home in a way that honors God, how can he lead and take care of the body of Christ? Fourth thing I want to say is deacons must pass an examination. Now, this isn't a written examination. This isn't an examination of Bible knowledge. Scripture says he must be tested in verse 10. That means to demonstrate one's capacity. This is not a written test. This is a life test. An assessment of a candidate's life and testimony that is based on the qualifications in Scripture. A candidate for deacon must be a member of and have a proven track record of faithful service to the Lord, to his family, and in the church in which they are attending. It is not wise for new Christians to hold the position of deacon. It's not wise for churches to elect men to deacons they have not seen do ministry or seen serve. It's like going to war. A man, excuse me, a commander is not going to take troops to war that have never been trained, that have never been battle-tested. And we need to be mindful that we are in a war of a different nature. We are in a spiritual war. We need men who have stood the test of time and proven they are faithful and they can remain faithful to God. And some questions we need to ask. What is known about this man being considered? How long has he been a member of our church? What kind of faithful service has he rendered to our church? What kind of service did he do in other churches? What is his reputation in the community? What is his reputation at work? How does he treat his wife and his children? If you want to know about a deacon's life, go ask his wife and go ask his children. What is there about his life that indicates he is ready to assume this responsibility? These are the types of questions that we should ask before a man is nominated and elected to serve as a deacon. This is not a personality contest. This is not a popularity contest. And even though a man may be a great person and have a passion for God, it is not wise for a church to put men, to put men into place of spiritual leadership with great responsibility who have not been tested. At the end of verse 10, it says they must be proved blameless that simply means they must be beyond reproach this is a general characteristic this is an overarching characteristic that should describe a candidate's life meaning that nothing in a man's background based on these qualifications would disqualify him from serving 
There can be no overt sin in his life or no flagrant sin in his life that defines his life. And he must be an example of Christ for all others to follow. And if a deacon meets and upholds all the other qualifications in this passage, I promise you he'll be living a life of holiness. He'll be a man who pleases God. He'll be a man after God's own heart. And this is exactly what God wants in the spiritual leadership of his church. Men who love him, men who desire to be like him and follow him, and who can lead others to do the same. Finally, faithful deacons will receive compensation. Did you know there's a reward for being a deacon? Now, it's not monetary. Don't get your hopes up. There's no monetary reward. Verse 13. Oh, let me get to 1 Timothy. I'm in Corinthians. Here we go. For those who have served well as deacons acquire good standing for themselves and great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Faithful deacons will receive compensation. This is a spiritual reward for those who serve God faithfully. Serving well leads to a great spiritual reward. Scripture says that faithful deacons should be respected for their service and recognized for their service. Because when a church has godly, faithful deacons, you know what happens? The church thrives in accomplishing God's will for the church and God's vision and God's mission for the church. And serving well also gives added confidence in the faith. It gives deacons boldness to minister and to live out and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the more confident a deacon becomes in the faith, the more effectively they can serve Christ and his church well. A deacon's life should be characterized by every single one of these qualifications. If a deacon meets 75% of these qualifications, he doesn't qualify as a deacon. A deacon must meet every one of these qualifications. He must be a man of good reputation. He must uphold the message of salvation. He must competently manage his family relations. He must pass an examination, the test of life. And if he does so, he will be rewarded for his service. A deacon's life should be characterized by every single one of things. As I said earlier, everyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ their lives should be characterized by every single one of these things as well. So what is the difference? Here's the difference. Deacons are not just to serve. There's a lot of people that serve in our church. We have a church full of servants. But here's the difference. Deacons are to lead others to serve through the faith they profess and the life that they live. They are to be a servant leader. And before you nominate a man to be a deacon, please make sure he's living up to these standards. Please make sure he's meeting all these qualifications. Make sure that you examine and pray about every aspect of his life. And don't make one qualification more important than the other. And if you're nominated and called elected to serve as a deacon, Make sure you're living up to these standards, knowing 
that what you do and how you live your life is a reflection on you, it's a reflection on your family, it's a reflection on Red House Baptist Church, and most importantly, it's a reflection on Jesus Christ. So if you dare to be a deacon, if you want to be the deacon God wants you to be, to know what God requires of you, to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with God. And I'm so thankful for the deacons that Red House Baptist Church has. We have a great group of men who love God and who love this church. And I'm thankful for every single one of them. And my prayer is God would continue to bless our church and raise up godly men who are called to be deacons and that these deacons and the deacons we currently have will continue to be faithful to him. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you today and just thank you so much for this time that we've had in your word. God, I know it's been a different type of message today. But Father, it's so important for us as a church to elect men to these, this position of of deacon to this position of leadership that meet these qualifications in Scripture, God. Not our qualifications, but your qualifications. And Father, I pray that we would take this process seriously of nominating men to fulfill the role of the office of deacon, God. And Father, I pray the men that are nominated would meet every single one of these qualifications. And Father, I pray that we as a church would pray about the men that you would have us to call, to elect, to serve as spiritual leaders in our body. And Father, I'm so thankful for the men we have who are serving as deacons. I thank you for the lives that they live. I thank you for their commitment to you. I thank you for their commitment, their love for Red House Baptist Church. Father, I pray that you'd bless them and bless their ministry and bless their families. God, it's not easy to be a deacon. God, it can be difficult. But Father, I pray that you'll bless the deacons that we have. Give them wisdom and guidance in guiding our church. And pray for the deacons, God, that you already know that you're going to, to call to be part of this body of deacons and, and to lead our church. And pray, Father, they would desire to live lives of holiness for you. Father, just guide us through this process. Fathers, we come now to this time of commitment. I know, Lord, it's been different this morning. But God, every one of these qualifications that we've talked about apply to anyone who's given their life to Christ. Father, you desire all of us to be people of good reputation. You desire for all of us to live out what we believe, Father. You desire for all of us, for our speech and our actions to be God-honoring. And Father, if there's an area in our lives, God, that's not what it should be, I pray we would come to this altar or where we're at, God, we would just say, God, take over this area of my life and may I be committed to you and love you more than anything. And God, forgive me for where I've sinned. Father, may each of us examine our lives. And Father, if our lives don't measure up to your standards, if our lives don't measure up to Jesus, Father, I pray that you would convict us and we would make the changes that are needed so, God, that we can become more like you. Father, if there are people here that need to join our church, Father, maybe 
you've called them to, to join Red House, may they come this morning and say, I want to join. Maybe there are those who've given their life to you, but they haven't been baptized. They need to follow you in baptism. But Father, maybe there's other calls you've placed on the life of people this morning. May they respond in obedience. And Father, if there's one here who's never given their life to you, I pray, Father, through this message, God, that they would realize what Jesus did for them when he went to that cross and gave his life for them and paid for their sin. And God, I pray this morning they would say, I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life, the Savior of my life. I want to give my life to him because of what he did to me. Father, whatever decision needs to be made this morning, I pray, God, that people would respond in obedience. And God, we just ask all these things in your most holy and precious and awesome name.